Hey there. We are working hard this month on some big projects we've got coming up, stories I am super excited about. And meanwhile, I want to share another show with you. This one takes on a topic that, although it is definitely tied to the cost of healthcare, is just too big, too complicated, and honestly, too enraging, terrifying, and depressing for me to tackle in this show. That's the opioid crisis. And actually, Somebody else has made the podcast about this topic, one that goes deep and does it in an incredibly human way, determined to find answers to tough questions, find a way through, find connection at every step. That show is called Last Day, and the person is Stephanie Whittles-Wax. A couple things about Stephanie. First, when she found out that insurance companies in Texas weren't required to cover hearing aids for deaf and hard of hearing kids, like her own young daughter, she basically went to war and got state law changed. We told that story in an episode of this show that is still one of my favorites, Mom versus Texas. Second, after her younger brother Harris died from a heroin overdose, she did a couple things. One, she wrote an incredibly moving and sometimes hilarious book called Everything is Horrible and Wonderful. And then she started a podcast company, Lemonada Media, to make Last Day. You're about to hear the first ever episode of Last Day, which means if you haven't met Stephanie before on this show, you're about to meet one of my favorite people. You can find the rest of Last Day wherever you get podcasts, and I'll have a link wherever you're hearing this. And you may want to subscribe to Last Day for new episodes. They'll be putting out their third season tackling the American gun violence epidemic this spring. Okay, catch you in a couple weeks. Till then, take care of yourself. Here's Last Day. What's up? I'm Harris. I'm 33 years young. I have my cousin Jason's truck for two more weeks. I have one testicle, whack-a-mole accident, and I'm down to clown. That's my brother, Harris Whittles, playing a character named Harris, the animal control guy, on a show called Parks and Recreation. He wrote comedy for people like Aziz Ansari. I would say he was a lovable, uniquely funny person amongst a group of incredibly, uniquely funny, lovable people. And Sarah Silverman. One of the really special things about Harris, not only that he's so original and so funny, is his fucking audacity and his nerve. He comes to me and says, I need four days off because I'm going... Um, I'm, I want to go see a bunch of fish concerts. And I had already made the plan. <laughs> I just look at him like, are you fucking kidding me? And I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax. This is Last Day. I'm a relatively normal person. I'm married to this guy. I unload the packages. <laughs> I get the luggage. It is so I'm funny. a porter. <laughs> you are. You are a porter. Exactly Every morning, I say sentences like, brush your teeth and put on your shoes about 800 times before driving small people to school in my minivan. Best car I've ever had. Truly, I shamelessly love this cliche of a car and the small people. There's this one. She's five. Up and we're going to have an aerial birthday. Yay for me. Yay. And this one. He's one. 
I don't run a child taxi service, although why has this not been done yet? It is necessary and useful, and someone should do it. You're welcome. So these small people are my children, and I love them ferociously with every cell in my body. And what naturally accompanies all of that love is a deep fear that something terrible could happen to them at any moment. Every day I take our kids to school and I pass by this billboard that advertises a rehab facility. It says in giant blue letters, END THE ADDICTION, all capitals. Which, I mean, just seems like false advertising. Because I read recently that opioids are killing more people now than car accidents. 70,000 people died of drug overdoses in 2017. 70,000. I mean, it's basically the average maximum capacity of an NFL stadium. So a stadium's worth of people were completely wiped out in a single year by drugs. And it gets worse. According to the CDC, we have lost over 700,000 people to overdoses since 1999. And nearly 400,000 of those were from opioids. And one of them was my brother. I wrote that entire book on so much drugs. Humble brag? Yeah, that's a humble brag. That's Harris on a podcast called You Made It Weird, hosted by Pete Holmes. And he's talking about the book he wrote called Humble Brag, The Art of False Modesty. He invented that word, humble brag, like he just made it up from his brain. And now it's in the dictionary. Harris didn't go from zero to opioids. Growing up, he did all the typical teen experimentation things. We did a lot of the things together. But the things changed pretty drastically after he got a prescription from a medical doctor. Oxycontin for back pain. Harris struggled for a while with that on his own. And after a painful year of begging him to go to rehab and him resisting for every reason under the sun, he finally went in for 30 days. And it worked. It seemed awesome. He seemed like himself again. But then he relapsed, unbeknownst to us. And then he started shooting heroin because it's cheaper and easier to come by. Here's Harris again talking to Pete Holmes on You Made It Weird. So the first time I go home and shoot it, you you put the needle in, you yeah. find a vein, you put the needle in, you draw back so that blood goes into the syringe so you can see that you're in a vein. And within three seconds, you feel like there are a thousand dicks all over your body and they're all coming. Like, I've never felt anything like it. I was like, okay, I do heroin now. That's it. Then he went back to rehab. He finished another 30-day program, relapsed again, and went back to rehab. He knew the stakes. I'm just taking it a lot more seriously now because I felt like I, um, I can't 
I, if I go out again now that it's shooting heroin, I could die. That's right. it. It's not fun anymore. It's like life and death now. And I don't want to do that to my parents. I don't want to do that to myself. Um, so I'm taking it more seriously now. Um, and I'm in a good place. By the time that interview aired, he'd already relapsed. He went back to rehab a few months later. This was rehab number three. He was there for six weeks total. Detox first and then into sober living. What we know is that he checked himself out. It was February 17th, 2015. He did stand-up comedy the next night at Meltdown. It's a club in L.A. Came home, sent an email to my mom. He said he felt good. He even used an exclamation mark. That's how good he felt. He said he felt fortunate. He told her that he loved her. And then he shot up. All alone in his house. Overdosed and died. That was it. He was gone. Permanently and forever gone from our lives and the lives of everyone who loved him. Which was so many people. When my brother was alive, he made the rest of us look so bad. I mean, even dead, he still makes the rest of us look bad. He accomplished more in 30 years than most people accomplish in a lifetime. He had the most creative, limitless mind that was always working. His resume is the stuff of dreams. He got his first big break at 22 on the Sarah Silverman program. He was a writer, producer, actor on NBC's Parks and Recreation. He wrote on the show Master of None, which won an Emmy. His sense of humor could be crude and raunchy, not everyone's cup of tea. But Aziz Ansari and Sarah Silverman and many other people who are objectively funny for a living really liked that tea. I did. I liked that tea. He made me laugh more than anyone else. But more than that, he was my brother. He was my only sibling. He was like the Robin to my Batman. I'm definitely not a superhero, but, you know, we were a team. He talked me off so many ledges over the years. Whenever I'd start to spiral, he'd be like, quit future tripping. It was this gentle reminder, or maybe not so gentle, <laughs> to just be wherever you are right now. After Harris died, I honestly didn't know how to do life without him. I was completely 100% consumed by grief. So I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and it turned into a book called Everything is Horrible and Wonderful, which it is. And I'm fairly certain that the writing saved my life. And when it came out, people, all sorts of people, came out of the internet woodwork to share their own stories of losing someone they loved. And it turns out that nearly everybody you know is either struggling with or loves someone or knows someone who is struggling with some really difficult shit. 
And for some reason, we continue to keep these stories hidden away, just eating at our insides. This is a show about that. The stories we hide. The shame we carry. The stuff that's not supposed to happen. It's about endings that are sudden and unexpected, ugly and worthy of Irish keening. If you don't know what that is, it's what some people, I guess some Irish people, do to express grief when there just aren't words. It's like a moaning, weeping, wailing thing. So I did that. I did a lot of that. And after the months of despair, this weird thing started to slowly happen. At some point after Harris died, I went from thinking, we're all going to die, what's the point, to, wait, oh my God, we're all going to die. That's the point. I went from thinking that everything was hopeless and meaningless to realizing that our time here is so short, so fast. And that was incredibly freeing. It made me embrace all the cliches, all the sayings written on pillows. Because life is short. So fuck it. I'd better do what I can with the time I've got. So this, this show, is that. This is Last Day, a new podcast from Lemonada Media about the things that are killing us. And by us, I mean all of us. People you know, people you love, people you interact with every single day. We'll start with opioids, obviously. And in future seasons, we'll tackle other issues that are hard to discuss and getting worse every day. Because there are so many people like me, who have lost people like Harris, or people who are currently agonizing over the possibility of losing someone like Harris, or people who are currently feeling like Harris. And all of these people and their people and their people's people have nowhere to put those big feelings. They don't know what to do or where to go or how to stop the bleeding. It's time to figure out how we, as a society, have gotten here. So naturally, we'll start with a comedian. Her name is Sarah Silverman. Oh my, this is embarrassing. It's Silverstein. Oh my God, shit. I knew I was going to fuck it up. Yeah, I'm everybody so does sorry. that. It's fine. It's I'm fine. so sorry. I, I knew that you were like one of the tribe. I didn't know which of the end right. it was. It doesn't matter, really. Sarah we're gave Harris his first real job in comedy. Yeah, he was a newborn baby. Well, he was 22, but essentially a newborn baby. And we always joked about how she was like a mom to him in L.A. She saw all this potential in him, and she got to watch him grow into the comedian and the human that he was. So I decided to fly to L.A. to see if she could give me some answers about what happened to him. They first met after Harris did a set at a club called Largo. After the show, I was smoking a joint in the alley in the back and invited him to join. And, you know, didn't know that 
ironically about Harris, not a big pot smoker. I know. Yeah, never or, or really took to it. Yeah, yeah. So we smoked pot. And then, yes, I had him in my head. And, you know, we had, like, spots for, like, five writers when the Sarah Silverman program got picked up. And I said, you know, this guy, Harris Whittles, let me email him. And he, of course, really became one of our strongest maybe our strongest writer. And one of the really special things about Harris, not only that he's so original and so funny, is his fucking audacity and his nerve. So he's a junior... The chutzpah. The chutzpah on this kid. It's fucking crazy. And he's a junior writer. He's so excited to be here. His, you know, he It's his first writing job. And he comes to me and says, I need four days off... Because I'm going, I want to go see a bunch of fish concerts. And I had already made the plan. (laughs) I just look at him like, are you fucking kidding me? And I don't know how it happened, but I let him go. Yes. (laughs) He just, he puts a spell on you. He does. Like, I remember hearing that your mother (laughs) would take him grocery shopping and let him have a tiny shopping cart that he could put Anything he wanted in. And I said, that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. This, this yeah. completely makes sense. And yet, it, it's so hard to be put off by it because he was such a comic genius and brought so much joy. I know. And I'm going to just blow your mind a little bit right here. It wasn't a little cart, Sarah. It was a big cart. Go. He got his own big cart. Oh and he could God. fill it with... Whatever shit he wanted. What he put in his human body. It's garbage. It's crazy. I know. So you wrote these tweets after he passed. Uh Uh-huh. Oh. Can I show them to you? Sure. Okay. So this is what you said. He was my baby. I just keep thinking of Superman flying backwards around the earth. I wish I could do that. I'm so mad at you, Harris. Yeah, that's how I was so mad at him for so long. You should know that Harris was brilliant beyond compare, that his imagination was without limit, that he loved comedy more than anything, that his heart was big and he felt hard and he was someone who would reach out to you to tell you that he was thinking of you for no particular reason. That's true. That he was honest even when it was going to piss you off or make him look shitty. He told the truth, even when it was ugly, even when he lied. Oh, yeah, that's so true. It really is. I think you were so warm and loving to him. You know, after the first time he went to rehab, I'm sad it took that, but I really shifted in realizing this kid is not okay, and I was able to kind of change my dynamic with him because I was like, oh— you know, I ah. he's wounded. Yeah, yeah, and it, it just it it just worried me so much, and I I think I had to like shift at that first time because I was like, oh, he just needs tons of love. Like this kid that you just went, oh, he has all the love in the world, and everyone adores him, and he's you know what I mean. No, it it was he needed to feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he did have all the love in the world, which is what he so did. He was adored. Yeah, you know. And he always said, like, I had a great childhood. I mean, all the risk factors just didn't apply to him. No, it doesn't make sense. So when he did go to rehab that first time, 
Were you surprised? Yeah, was it shocking? I was shocked. I was shocked the first time he texted me and said, I'm in rehab uh, for pills, for Oxy. Of course, you just think, well, that will be it. He'll get better, and then he'll be better, you know? Yeah. Oh, I do. I do now. Yeah. I, I thought that, too. Yeah. That's what you think. Then that summer is when he started shooting heroin. And then he went back to rehab a second time after he started yeah, shooting heroin. Yeah, that was a text where he said, you're not going to believe this. I'm in rehab for shooting actual heroin. This is the text he sent you? Yeah, that was the text <laughs> I got. And it was just, you know, even his text was funny, but it was, I was, I couldn't believe it. I had, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I just said, oh, my God, I, I love you. And, you know. Yeah. We were in Texas, so right. he could conveniently not get on the phone. Text is such a great I know. thing for addicts. <laughs> I don't think I'm supposed to say addicts. For people who struggle with substance abuse. That's oh, what I'm this, supposed right? to okay. say. Yeah, apparently you're not, you're not supposed to say addict anymore. Um, so, I, you know, he could hide behind that. And so I, I didn't see him in an er- on any regular basis. And so picking up on those warning signs was... Like, impossible. Yeah. I mean, he was writing at Parks and Rec, and I, I never saw him, you know. I mean, we just— Right. Um, the last text I got from him, I had just made a movie where I played a person struggling with— uh, Substance abuse. Substance abuse. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the last text I got from him was just that he said he heard about the movie, and he was so proud of me and excited about it, and— he said something very loving and, um, and you know, like, when he died, I, you know, like, I I looked to, like, the last contact with him, and it was that. And I was just like, oh, what could I've, I have—I could have done—I could have said that magic combination of words. I was really not involved in his life at all, and—but, um, yeah, it was— Yeah, anyway. When he died, I got his phone. And so I—it sat in my drawer for, like, two months because I was just catatonic. And then one day I was like, oh, shit, I have his phone. So I plugged it into my computer because I wanted to keep everything— and all the photos imported into my oh, iPhone. Oh, like all his penis pictures. So I basically would have like a picture of my baby and then some girl's tits <laughs> and then Harris's dick and then some girl's ass. And then like it's literally like my iPhoto is like all naked body parts and then cute babies. It was just truly like a, a lovely parting gift. I know. It's so awful because from I, him. There, were, there was one picture i had one penis picture of him in my book oh my mother my mother loved it he was it very was, proud <laughs> it was so funny well that was my favorite story is i have so many penis uh, penises of his picture penises of his picture but one is like he's his penis and balls are completely out of his <laughs> pants and he's dying laughing like about something else <laughs> and it's just like the most joyful picture you could ever see I, you know, in the writers' room, we talked about all our sexual endeavors, and he has really had long some, list. He had a good. He had some, ex, some real experiences. I, I've only seen in porn. Exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> this is how he would want to be remembered. He would. He's Not here for with the heroin us. talk. Yeah. So, um, 
I'm sure that coming into a booth and talking about your dead friend mm. isn't the most fun. Thing I mean, you but it's imagine. up there. I mean, I mean, like top three. <laughs> but like, I appreciate you coming in. But why would you agree to this form of torture? Well, I love Harris, and I wow. also get a little dose when I get to see you. Yeah. And I see him in your face and in your words and in your way. Oh, sorry. Sarah. I love you, Harris. That probably and appropriately cheerful music is Harris's band called Don't Stop or We'll Die. In the video for it, Harris and his friends Michael Cassidy and Paul Rust are on roller skates delivering pizza. That's definitely how Harris would want us all to be imagining him. Eking out playing drums, cracking up with his dick out, or picking up a girl. What was the thing that um, every girl had at least a 20% crush on him? <laughs> yeah, like that is, that is an absurd statement. <laughs> But you kind of, if you know him, you're like, I guess, I don't know. When we come back, we will not be talking more about Harris's penis. So stick with us. We're back. This is Last Day. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax. And this is Aziz Ansari. Yeah, I mean, I can date tickets. Oh, I know yeah. a guy. Because you're, you're, oh, you know a guy. It's me. Yeah, okay, okay. I forgot. Aziz loved yeah. Harris. I would love and Harris loved him. Yeah. They worked together on Parks and Rec, and then again on Master of None. When Harris died, Aziz was a pallbearer at the funeral. And he wrote an amazing tribute to him which was actually truly funny in a moment when it seemed like nothing would ever be funny again. Your Tumblr post that you wrote about Harris was single-handedly, mm-hmm. like, the thing that made my parents laugh for the first time after Harris died, like, 48 hours in. And um, I don't know if I've ever said thank you for that, but that was amazing. So, um, thank oh. you. <laughs> yeah, I'd never had to process the death of a friend like that. And um, the day that it happened, a lot of people ended up at my house, like people that were writing on Master None of the time, people that wrote with him on Parks, and we were all just talking about him, and everyone was just sharing stories, and it, it was just so different than, you know, these random articles that were coming out. And I just wanted to write something to kind of, you know, share some of these really funny personal moments that we all had and 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 I'm especially glad that it, it made you and your family laugh. Oh yeah, it was incredible. I remember we were all laughing and then I remember thinking like, oh shit, like should we should stop laughing, you know? <laughs> like this is this should be a serious moment, but it was just this really incredible medicine that that you gave us. So, um thank you. So the Master of None casting, Harris was so excited about that. I mean, that was a huge role to play your best friend named Harris? Yeah, I mean, I loved Harris as an actor. And when we were writing the first season of Master Nun, we were just kind of figuring out who his this character's friends are and stuff. 
And at one point, we're like, well, let's just write a character that's kind of based around Harris. And we had to tell her, like, hey, like, you kind of have to audition for this just because, you know, the higher ups, they want to see an audition tape. So he had to audition to play <laughs> to play himself. And he was so good and he took it so seriously and like he was very nervous. I'd never really seen him like that nervous. I could tell it was something that was really important to him and and he did a great job. And and uh I remember when we called him to tell him that he got it and he was so happy and it's like it, it's so crushing to think about now. He was so excited and so excited to go to New York. And Harris was a big um part of the first season, you know, like uh, me and Alan were the showrunners, but Harris was kind of the second in command, and he was definitely a, a big architect of of that show in this first season. And and so we were all just really excited to continue seeing this through together. It's like so sad to think about now, but yeah, I was um, talking to Mike Sure, your old boss. Do you remember him? Yes. Um, <laughs> and I was like, how did Harris keep his job? Because he. I mean, from what I understand, he was late constantly, you know, and, like, just would write ridiculous things to Mike. And I was like, how did he keep his job? And Mike was like, because he was funny. Like, period. Harris was funny. I mean, I would rather have uh, Harris in a writer's room and have him there for two hours and have some bozo that's there all day showing up on time. And, (laughs) you know, like, he's a a singular talent. Didn't you tell me once— I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch this word, but it's called chuffa, chuff, chuffa. What's the word? Chuffa. Chuffa is, so when you start a scene in, in parks or Master None, before you can get into what the scene is really about, there's like one or two lines of just kind of silly, meaningless conversation that's like somewhat funny to get you into the scene. And that's referred to as chuffa amongst, uh, you know, comedy writers. And uh, and Harris was exceptional at writing Chuffa. And uh, a lot of the uh, the kind of memorable Chuffa that I remember from Parks or, or season one of Master Nun was stuff he, he came up with. Like, there's a scene where in Master Nun where it's me and Arnold walking around and we're talking about the weather. He wrote the scene. It was me saying, like, uh, why don't they just keep the weather consistent everywhere like if it's cold outside it's cold inside that way you don't have to like take off your coat and stuff (laughs) (laughs) and it was just like a ridiculous idea and it's and and he just wrote it with me like really committing to like yeah i mean that's what it should be done like store owners everybody (laughs) so that way it doesn't inconvenience everybody or uh there is a there's one from parks i remember it's like it's me and donna it's tom and donna and Tom says, what's your favorite kind of cake? And, and uh, Donna says, birthday cake. And he's like, well, you can't, that's not a type of cake. That's like, say, your favorite kind of cereal is breakfast cereal. <laughs> and it was just that. And then, like, something else happens, like a gunshot goes off or something like that. But it, that was just like, you know, just weird little couplets like that, weird kind of Harris logic thrown into these little quick conversations. Which is, like, essentially his logic. Like, that, like he probably did think, why don't they just make weather standard? That was probably just a real thought that he that he had as a human being. Yeah, there is there is probably a moment or two where he genuinely thought that was a good idea. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. Um, so we know Harris, obviously, but if you were going to describe him to somebody who didn't know him or maybe like only knew him as the animal control guy in parks, 
What do you say to capture this human being to somebody? Like, I know him in the context of, of the comedy community, which is full of exceptional, uniquely funny, incredible people. And even amongst that group, he stood out in a way. That was kind of like the feeling I remember having when he passed was like, man, of all the shitty people that could have been taken away, like, you're, you're going to take this guy, like, out of everybody? Like, this incredibly funny writer that was kind of a prodigy of sorts, that loved eating at Chili's, that, uh, you know, had all these crazy notions about the world and about himself. And he was also a little bit mischievous and, you know, things like he would be late for work and stuff like that. And you'd kind of be like, come on, Harris. But then at the same time, he was so lovable, you could never really be mad at him. I know. I, As his sibling, I feel that very strongly. There was many times where I'd be mad at him. And then I'd be like, but you're just so adorable. Yeah. Um, And also maddening, though, like very frustrating, too, but in a way that was acceptable. It's very hard to articulate. Yeah, exactly. I haven't talked to you about what you knew about Harris's substance abuse. And did you know Harris was struggling with with substance abuse? Well, I think I had an incredibly naive view of what his addiction was like. I thought, oh, well, he's going to rehab. He's getting help. Like, that means he's fine. He's checked in. Everything's fine. And it just seemed like something he was on top of. And anytime you acted like it was serious at all around Harris, he acted like you were insane. He's like, what are you talking? Yeah, I'm fine. He made you feel like a complete fool for even bringing it up or being concerned at all. You know what I mean? I Like, he I acted do. like it was, yeah. it was not a big deal. And and I was like, okay, I guess, like, you know, and was so adamant about it, I kind of just backed away. And whenever it happened, I mean, it was like, I, I couldn't believe it. It was not like, oh, yeah, that week I'd been seeing him and he wasn't doing well. Like, he was fine. Like, he was with me, like, two days before, I think. You know what I mean? Like, he was supposed to come into work that day, and he didn't come in. I was like, oh, he must be sick or something. You know, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, he's, like, you know, coming to work and nodding off every day. Or, or you know, he seemed, he seemed kind of fine. So... It really just came out of the blue. And, you know, I was just so ignorant about what heroin addiction is really like and how it's kind of this endless struggle and how it the story with Harris is frighteningly uh, a trope. You know, you read these stories. Every single person has the same stories. Oh, yeah, and then the doctor gave me these pills for back pain. Then I started losing exorbitant amounts of money to get them. And then at a certain point, I was like, oh, whoa, heroin is the same high and it's a lot cheaper. And I never would be the kind of person that would put a needle in my arm. But I was so addicted to this drug from the pills that I had to do it. And I crossed that bridge and then I got addicted to heroin. And I'm just, you know, this normal person that you would never associate with this insane drug that has the worst reputation amongst drugs, but that's how powerful the opioid addiction is. And it, it, it sucks all these people in the same way it sucked Harris. Did he tell you that he had checked out of his sober living home? No, I, I'd assumed he was there and the days that he was coming were the days that he was out. And then I went back and I listened to that podcast he did with Pete Holmes, which is, it's one of the most, you know, incredible documents about 
this crisis in a way because it's it's him telling the story of oh this is this kid from a great family who's having a great career and how the fuck does he start doing heroin and this is how for me when i when i heard it it was crazy because he was talking about being sober and how he was aware of the fact that if he used again he would die and that he couldn't do that to his family but by the time yeah. i heard it he'd already relapsed oh my god i didn't know that yeah and i remember texting him and being like what the fuck man like the only time in my life as a sibling to Harris that I can recall being legitimately full of anger you know where it was like nothing that you say will make me not angry right now because you know in my brain that is not addicted to something I'm like like you said there's a 30-day program you're going in you're going to get it taken care of the end it feels very Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Yeah, that's what I thought. And uh, clearly a very naive view on what that addiction is. It's a much bigger monster than I think any of us could ever understand. And it does not let up. I think about death a lot. I think about the day a person dies. How the morning is just... A morning. A meal is just a meal. A song is just a song. It's not the last morning or the last meal or the last song. It's all very ordinary. And then it's all very over. That space between life and death is a moment. February 19th, 2015 was an ordinary day. I took some photos of my baby flipping through this book called Lost Beauties of the English Language. I made coffee, drove to work, ate some lunch. I remember noting the beautiful day. I changed a diaper like I'd done a thousand times before. All the while, my little brother lay lifeless on a rug thousands of miles away, and I had no idea until I got the call that he died of a heroin overdose. I had no idea. In one moment, he was alive. And in the next, he wasn't. The Greeks call it a peripatia. A sudden reversal of fortune or a change in circumstances. A point of no return. I wonder what led up to his point of no return. I wonder about the first thing he thought when he opened his eyes that morning. I wonder what he ate for breakfast and lunch and dinner. I hope one of them was Chili's nachos, because he really loved Chili's nachos. Or or the chocolatey bottom of a drumstick. Love those two. I wonder what jokes were brewing inside of his head. There were always jokes brewing inside of his head. I wonder if he watched any adorable videos of his niece and which ones. I wonder what plans he made for later that day and tomorrow. I wonder what he thought about before he did that thing that changed all of us forever. Hey, it's Harris calling from heaven. 
Uh, it's pretty great up here. Uh, it's beautiful, for starters. Uh, Hitler's up here, however, for the vegetarianism thing. So, calling bullshit on that. But other than that, it's pretty great. It's, uh, it is very cloudy. Uh, and you, you sit on them. So that's cool. Uh, oh, gotta go. Ice cream buffet. I can't know what Harris was thinking that day. I'll never know what Harris was thinking that day. But on our next episode, we'll try to unearth what someone was thinking the day they overdosed. We'll walk through the day they died, from start to the very end. That's next time on Last Day. Last Day is a production of Lemonada Media. It's produced by Justine Daum. Kat Aaron is our consulting producer. Jessica Cordova-Kramer is our executive producer. Mix and sound design was done by Joe Plord. Keegan Zema is our editor. Our music is by Hannes Brown. And I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax. See you next week. <laughs>